You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Hey, we started a a new series last week called We uh, Believe, and every so often I think it's just so important in the life of the church to just kind of take an opportunity and just take some time to talk about what it is that we believe as a church. Uh, what we believe the Bible teaches regarding certain Christian doctrine, and really what we are called to believe uh, as Christians. And last week we kind of talked about worldviews. And I, I just said, you know, in that, that all of us have a worldview. Now you may not know exactly what that is or what that fully entails, but regardless of that, all of us have a way in which we view the world. And we talked about basically there being two main worldviews. And that being a biblical Christian worldview and a secular worldview. And that our worldview, the way we look at the world, kind of affects the way we see the world, how we interact with the world, and that both of those worldviews, whether it's a biblical or a secular worldview, both of those are based upon faith. Last week I talked about there being three main key questions that both biblical and secular worldviews attempt to answer. And the first question is, who are we? How did we get here? Where did this world come from? The second question is, why is there war, evil, suffering in the world? What is our major problem and what is its source? And the third and final question every worldview seeks or attempts to answer is again, what is the solution? How can we set the world right again? And what you will discover is that both the biblical worldview and the secular worldview offer radically different answers to those three key questions. So this morning, I want to kind of just talk about the first question, and I want to look at the response from both a biblical worldview and a secular worldview, because it really boils down to being the ultimate question of all time. Who are we? How did we get here? Where did the world come from? Now, from a biblical worldview, we immediately kind of just turn the Bible to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1-1, and there God kind of provides us with an answer when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So from the very beginning of God's word to us says mankind had a beginning, a divine beginning, a supernatural beginning, Before there was a beginning, there was God who had no beginning. So everything that was created was the expressed handiwork of God. Mankind, you and I, being the masterpiece of all creation. Now the Bible plainly states that behind the entire creative order is God's divine hand. No natural forces exist on their own. Nothing receives its nature or its existence from any other source. I like how John puts it in his gospel, chapter one, there in verse three, and he says, all things come into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. 
Now, if that's true, then God's word is not only the source of laws of physical nature with which we study. It is also the source of laws of human nature, which tells us how we ought to live. So to answer to this question, who are we? How did we get here? Where did the world come from? From a biblical worldview, we can sum that all up in just one word, and that is God. Now, I hope and trust as you came in that you got an outline, because you're going to need that um, this morning. It's going to just be very, very helpful for you to have that, because what I want to talk on today, it really can almost kind of come across as very, very scientific, not so much as a sermon, but more kind of just scientific. It's one of these subjects I've never ever, I think in my whole history of being a pastor, have I preached on this. I'll mention it from time to time, but I've never really kind of come to dress the uh, subject head on like I want to do today. Uh, so if you, if you don't have an outline, you know, grab one because it's going to be really helpful as we kind of go through this. Now, the same question, who are we? How did we get here? Where did the world come from? From a secular worldview has just, again, a radically different response. Now, I don't have to tell you that there is just an ongoing debate, has been for, for decades, I and mean, it's just kind of a red hot and heavy debate in our culture today that really looks not to be resolved anytime soon. Now, entangled and engaged in this debate are scientists, doctors, lawyers, judges, teachers, and politicians. Not too long ago, a federal judge ruled in, in uh, Georgia that the Cobb County School Board could not put stickers on their science textbook with the following statement, and it read, this textbook contains material on evolution. Evolution is a theory, not a fact, regarding the origin of living things. This material should be approached with an open mind, studied carefully, and critically considered. That one statement is the catalyst that has really ignited a culture war that is being fought hot and heavy in many different battlefields all across this nation. As a matter of fact, this is something your children, your grandchildren are being taught in the public schools. This is something, this is a doctrine, this is a, uh, a teaching that has influenced and affected, I mean, every university, every college for decades. And there is an effect, there is an influence that this is having and has had upon our culture. And why I think as Christians, it's so important to understand what this revolution about evolution is all about. So I want you to know right up front, there is no way in one message that I can either disprove evolution nor prove creation. In fact, as I said kind of last week, no one can definitively um, be proved or disproved. I mean, you can never prove or disprove any event that took place in the past. Like I said last week, I, I can't prove to you that there was a man named George Washington who was the first president of the United States. All I can do is give you historical evidence of that, and then you've got to make up your own mind whether there was a man named George Washington who was the first president of the United States. And so we're going to, uh, this morning, I'm going to ask and attempt to answer 
what I think are six very simple but key questions that will totally help us put our arms kind of around this great debate and again kind of understand what is this revolution about evolution all about. So let's just start with this question. What is the definition of the theory of evolution? Now the very first problem in discussing evolution is really defining evolution. Because depending on the definition, there may or may not be a problem with the word evolution. So when textbooks say something like evolution has occurred, sometimes they just mean that change sometimes happens. Okay? And when that is the case, nobody has any disagreement with that. Nobody disputes that claim that change sometimes happen. Certain kinds of limited, subtle changes do occur in nature, and no one disputes that. Actually, there are really two meanings to the word evolution, and sometimes the word refers to what is known as microevolution, and microevolution simply states that change does take place within certain kinds of plants and animals and that there are certain varieties with different species. It's interesting, you know, I'll oftentimes read that, you know, oh, this species of animal has now become extinct and lo and behold, all of a sudden, scientists discover a brand new species we've never seen before. That's an example of microevolution. And it goes exactly with what the Bible says in the book of Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth every kind of animal, livestock, small animals, and wildlife. And, it, and so it was. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to reproduce more of its own kind. That's microevolution. The second type or meaning uh, of the word evolution is what we call macroevolution. And this is kind of where the wheels begin to fall off the bus. This is the theory that kind of made Charles Darwin famous. In essence, he not only said that living matter evolved from dead matter through an unknown random process plus time, but that all animals and plants and people evolved from a common ancestor through a random process of natural selection that ensures the, the survival of the fittest. Now to quote Carl Sagan, the 20th century high priest of the religion of evolution, he said, all living things arise by blind physical and chemical forces over eons from slime. Now my, my daughter makes slime. I don't know if your kids are into that, but there's all these things on the internet where they can mix things and kind of create their own slime. He also goes on and says, in human beings and all other species have slowly evolved by natural processes from a succession of more ancient beings, now get this, with no divine intervention needed along the way. Let me make this really simple so everybody can understand it. In essence, evolution wants us to believe explosions are us. 
I mean, that's really kind of, in a nutshell, what evolution is. Explosions are us. Again, understand the word evolution, it's used in, in, in two different ways. One word applies to the limited variation within an already existing species, again, which nobody denies or disputes. The second word, however, refers to unlimited change leading to the existence of new groups from one species to another, which as you will see in a moment, has absolutely no scientific verification whatsoever, and it is totally speculative. The great debate is over macroevolution, not microevolution. Second question is, why is the debate of the theory of evolution so important? Again, this is being taught in all public schools. It is being taught in all colleges and universities uh, around the country, and its effect and influence. You, you can't even measure it. It is so immense. Again, nobody disagrees that natural selection can turn small horses into big horses and small bird beaks into longer bird beaks, but a lot of people question and a lot of people disagree that it can turn a frog uh, into a fish, frogs into princes, and apes into men. Furthermore, not everybody agrees that life can come forth from non-life. Now here is one of the greatest myths about the creation intelligent design versus evolution debate, and it really needs to be addressed and, and destroyed once and for all. The common thought is that evolution is scientific and creation or intelligent design is religion. Okay, the truth of the matter is, is both evolutionary theory and the intelligent design theory are not about different subjects, okay? It's not science versus religion. Instead, both of these worldviews, again, are trying to give an answer to the same question. How did life come forth in the universe? And the truth of the matter is this, Genesis 1-1, which again plainly states that behind this universe is a divine designer, deserves to be put to the test by examining the evidence just as much as the theory of evolution. So I want you to understand, the debate is not between fact and faith. The debate is not between science and religion. The debate is between their science and our science. The debate is between their faith and our faith because like I said last week, every worldview, biblical, secular, is based upon faith. Dr. L. Harrison Matthews, a noted evolutionist who wrote the introduction to the 1971 edition of Darwin's famous book, Origin of the Species, here's what he wrote. He said, the fact of evolution is the backbone of biology and biology is thus in the peculiar position of being a science founded on an unproved theory. Is it then a science or faith? Belief in the theory of evolution is thus exactly parallel to belief in a special creation. He said both are concepts which believers know to be true, but neither 
up to the present has been capable of proof. So he's just saying what I already said. I, I can't disprove evolution but any more than I can prove creation. All I can give you is the evidence for both and then you have to decide. Dr. Arthur Field points out that evolution is based upon the belief in the reality of things that have never been seen or scientifically verified. I mean, it's based upon belief in fossils that cannot be produced, cannot be found, belief in embryological evidence that does not exist, and belief in breeding experiments that have been repeatedly tried but have never worked. Any objective observer has to conclude that whether you believe in the biblical worldview of creation or the secular evolutionary worldview of creation, you have to have faith. Faith is involved. It is the linchpin. Like I said last Sunday, every worldview, biblical or secular, every worldview is based upon faith. The issue is not science versus faith. The issue is science, evolution versus science, intelligent design, all based on scientific evidence. And here's what we were talking about earlier, Brian. I, I want to brag on the, uh, the evolutionists for a moment because I think it takes far more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in a divine design, as you're going to see in a moment. It's just this simple. If scientists can demonstrate, based on evidence, that life has emerged purely through natural chemical processes, then again, there's no need for God. Just like Carl Sagan said, there's, there's no need for God. However, if the evidence points to a divine design, then the evolutionary house of cards really begins to crumble. If you don't think the debate is important, let me put it this way. Whether you were created for a purpose or you have no purpose, ultimate purpose, whether there is a plan for your life and God has a plan for your life or there is no God, therefore really no plan for your life, whether some things are right and some things are wrong and God tells us which is which or right and wrong are simply up for a majority vote, all depends on the outcome or your response to this debate. Third question, what is the deficiency of the theory of evolution? There really are two basic questions you have to ask yourself about evolution. Number one, could evolution happen? And the second question is, did evolution happen? And I want to take the second question first, and I'm only going to give you what I see are the two major problems with this theory, though I could give you many more. Did evolution happen? Now, the first problem with this is what they kind of call the fossil flaw. And what this says is if every living being descended from a common ancestor and people and animals were not separately created, then what you would expect to find in ancient fossils would be thousands of intermediate forms of creatures that have some characteristics of one species 
and some characteristics of another species. So let me just give you an example. If it is indeed true, as evolution suggests, that a fish eventually turned into a bird, then you would expect to find half fish, half bird fossils. And this is exactly where Darwin himself saw the biggest problem. And here's what he said. He said, innumerable transitional forms must have existed. But why do we not find them embedded in countless numbers of the crust of the earth? Darwin himself was hoping that in due time, these kinds of fossils would be found. Well, here we are in the 21st century, and the fossil record is so anti-Darwinian that the evolutionists have now had to conjecture that evolution occurs in small groups that evidently were never fossilized. One leading fossil expert put it this way, evolution always seems to happen somewhere else. You see, when I was growing up, how many of you used to hear that phrase, the missing link? Oh, we're looking for the missing link between man and ape. Well, now we know that not only is the link missing, the whole dang chain is missing. Everybody is kind of waiting for this gap to be filled. Now, there's a a second problem with the question of, did evolution happen? And I call this the dead live dilemma. Okay, there is no scientific proof that life did or ever could evolve into existence from non-living matter. All the evidence points to the fact that spontaneous generation is impossible During all recorded human history, there has never been a substantiated case of a living thing being produced from anything other than another living thing. Every living thing on this planet today had a living, breathing source, period, ended. Darwin's problem is this. He tried to explain the survival of the fittest without first explaining the arrival of the fittest. And that raises another question. Could evolution happen? On your outline, I put on there three letters, D-N-A. Now, within each cell of your body, there is an area called the nucleus, which contains the chromosomes. Within the chromosomes, there is a structure that scientists have identified as DNA. Now, simply put, DNA, it is a super molecule which stores coded hereditary information. It's what says you're a boy or a girl, okay? It is made up of two long chains of chemical building blocks that are paired together. Now, to understand DNA, it is somewhat like a computer program on a floppy disk. What DNA does is it stores and it transfers encoded information and instructions. Now, get this. This is, this is phenomenal. The DNA of one human being 
stores enough information code to fill 1,000 books, each with 500 pages of very small, closely printed type. This information is far more sophisticated than that of any computer. Scientists are now beginning to realize that cells containing such a complex code and such intricate chemistry could never have come into being by accident or chance. No matter how the chemicals are mixed, they do not create DNA or any intelligent code whatsoever. Only DNA reproduces DNA. Sir Fred Hoyle, an internationally recognized astronomer, a mathematician, and one of Great Britain's foremost scientists, said the chance of life coming from non-life is about 10 followed by 40 zeros. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, let me quote him. He said, there is about as much chance of life being spontaneously produced as there is a tornado blowing through a junkyard and building a Boeing 747. Fourth question, why do scientists have such a devotion to the theory of evolution? Now, I know what some of you kind of may be thinking. You're asking yourself this question, and it's a good one. If evolution is such a deficient theory, if in fact it not only didn't happen but really couldn't have happened, why do scientists so vigorously defend it? To put it simply, the faith, again that's the linchpin for both worldviews, the faith of the evolutionist gets in the way of the facts of science. One of the most well-known scientists in the world is Richard Dawkins, and he made this statement. He said, even if there were no actual evidence in favor of the Darwinian theory, we should still be justified in preferring it over all rival theories. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, my mind is made up, and don't let the facts get in the way. The question arises, why? Why are they so devoted? Again, the answer is going to shock you, but here it is. Dr. George Wald, Professor Emeritus of Biology at Harvard University, and the Nobel Prize winning in biology in 1971 said this. He said, there are only two possibilities as to how life arose. He said, one is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. He said, there is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation, the belief that life comes from non-living matter. Now get this, was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That just leaves us with only one other possibility, that life arose as a creative act of God. But I will not accept that philosophy because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation leading 
to evolution. These, these are supposed to be the smart guys. Harvard biologist Richard Lewinton, even while admitting in his own words the patent absurdity of much evolutionary theory said simply, we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now you do understand that evolution, it's not primarily a science. It is primarily a philosophy and a religion. It is a philosophy that says this is a closed universe and the supernatural does not exist. It is a religion that has Darwin as its prophet, origin of the species as its Bible, and the theory of evolution as its God. Fifth question, what is the danger? What is the harm of believing in the theory of evolution? Again, this has, been, this has been taught to your children. It's been taught to your grandchildren. It's been taught for decades in schools and colleges and universities around this country. And do not think for one moment that this has not had a pervasive effect and influence upon our culture. It has. So what if people still want to continue to believe in this theory? What's the harm? Think about it. Either we are here by the accidental act of a random, purposeless process, or we have been created in the image of God with a purpose by his design. Again, the reason this is so important is your starting point will determine your concluding point. If we are ultimately the byproduct of time, chance, and random processes, then regardless of what else one says, we are really worthless, invaluable creatures, and there is nothing more beyond this life. Jeannie Haas was sharing with me in between services that she has a relative of hers that is a college professor and uh, very much into the evolutionary thinking. And, you know, she asked him, you know, do you, do you believe uh, in, in the afterlife in, or eternal life? And he said, no. And she said, well, what, what is eternal life? And, and he said, memories. And she's like, well, those memories are really only good for a couple of generations. I mean, and think about that. I mean, I only really have memories of my mother and father and their mother and fathers. Beyond that, I have no memory. And so uh, memories are really only a, a couple of generations old, and then they're gone. So what, what is eternal life? What is beyond this life? But if we were created in God's image and God's likeness, then I believe there is a purpose for our being here. And I believe that we are significantly valuable. If you want to know what's wrong in our culture today, the root of most of our problems that are afflicting us to this very moment are caused by the teaching of evolution. See, if life really doesn't matter, if life isn't valuable, then it's okay to abort unborn babies. It's okay to euthanize old people who have kind of outlived their value, who are kind of a drain on our resources. It's okay if life doesn't matter. It's okay to kill what is an inconvenience to us. 
evolutionist William Provine of Cornell University was really honest enough to admit that if evolution is true, he said there are five inescapable conclusions. He said, number one, there's no evidence for God and therefore no need for God. There is no life after death, number two. He said, number three conclusion is there is no absolute foundations for right and wrong. There's no absolute truth. Number four is there's no ultimate meaning to life. So go ahead, abort it. Go ahead, euthanize it. And number five is people don't really have a free will. Can I tell you the problem with believing in evolution in a nutshell? It is this. When God loses his preeminence, mankind loses their significance. When God loses his preeminence, mankind loses their significance. This is a battle over more than just science because when evolution is taught in the science classroom, you know what? It will bleed over to ethics, to law, to education, to morality, to theology, and philosophy. It is like a cancer in the bloodstream that will affect every vital organ of the culture. Sixth and final question is this, what does design creation do to the theory of evolution? Psalm 119 says, the heavens are telling, or translations say, the, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. The Bible makes no bones about it. It says the earth was divinely designed. If you look at this creation, and don't see evidence of a creator, don't blame the creator. Don't blame the watchmaker if you don't see him or her behind the watch. Don't blame the artist if you don't see him or her behind the portrait. Don't blame the photographer if you don't see him or her behind the picture. I mean, do you really believe that this earth, this planet is accidental? Is it accidental that the inexhaustible envelope of air only 50 miles deep has exactly the right density to support human life or that water expands when it freezes while other substances contract which makes ice lighter than water and keeps ice floating on the surface? Do you realize without that, lakes would be solid ice, clear down to the bottom, and no fish could survive? Is it accidental that the earth is precisely tilted, giving us four seasons a year? Is it accidental that the sun's fire does not generate so much heat that we fry, but just enough heat that we don't freeze? If you were just here this morning and just turned to the person sitting next to you and just for one second looked into their eyes, the eyes that you just looked at need 130 million light-sensitive devices to cause a photochemical reaction that transforms light into electrical impulses that go to your brain. Every second... 1,000 million of those impulses are zipped to the brain through the optical nerve 
system. The eye can handle one and a half million simultaneous messages. When exposed to darkness, the eye can increase its ability to see by 100,000 times and 137 million nerve endings pick up every message the eye sends to the brain. DNA just happened by chance. Your eye just happened by chance. I like what one man said. He said, if you come into the kitchen and saw the alphabet cereal spilled on the table and it spelled out your name and your address, would you think the cat just knocked over the cereal box? Where does the evidence lead? Ask Anthony Flew, a British philosophy professor who had been a leading champion of atheism for more than half a century and once debated C.S. Lewis on the existence of God. At the age of 81, after decades of insisting that belief in God was ridiculous, has now changed his mind and has now stated that based on scientific evidence, there had to be a super intelligence of first cause as the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. Do you know what Dr. Flew had to admit? Design destroys the theory of evolution. It takes out chance and puts in God. That is why the evolutionists hate the theory of intelligent design so much. Let me make this super personal to you. Only when you understand how you got here will you ever understand why you are here. Only God can answer the basic questions of human existence. Questions like, where did I come from? I came from the heart and the mind of an omnipotent, omniscient God that has an awesome plan for my life. What am I? I am the highest of all God's creation, put here by God, designed to have a personal relationship with me. Why am I here? I'm here to know that God, love that God, serve that God, and fulfill his plans for my life. How should I live? I should live according to his word by a spirit which dwells in me so that I can fulfill his plan and purpose for my life. Where am I going? If I come to a personal relationship with him through his faith, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, I can go to heaven and spend eternity with the God that made me. Folks, you're not here by chance or some random, unknown process. You're not just a chance collection of atoms and molecules that happen to just come together by fate or by chance. You were born on this earth physically. You were created by God that you might be born again spiritually so that through faith in Jesus Christ you can know, love, serve, and live forever with the God who wondrously created you. Amen? Uh, Pastor Jason asked me this morning where I was going to land on the end of this, and I kind of said, well, first of all, I'm going to have to see how many people are awake when I get done, because again, this is, this is one of these things. It can be kind of really heady, uh, not so much... Uh, speaks to the heart, but really kind of speaks more uh, to our mind. Um, I know many of you um, maybe were a part of our celebration of life yesterday for 
Uh, one of our uh, dearly beloved members, Pat Ellsbury, uh, passed away uh, earlier this week, and we had a celebration uh, of her life. And I don't know about you, but I, I never, ever in my life have been or conducted a funeral where at some point in that process, I don't reflect or I don't think about where my life is. You know, where, where is my life in terms of my walk with God? Am I living, am I fulfilling God's purposes and plans for my life? If this were the end of my life, I mean, where would I be? What would, what would people be thinking? I mean, would, would, would people be thinking that, that I impacted their lives? Would people think that I was here and, and made a difference in people's lives like Pat had done in so many lives? And again, I, I think about that every time I, I do a service. If this were my time, have I fulfilled God's plans and purposes for me? Now, I believe I was created by God. I was created for a specific purpose. And the number one goal of my life is to discover and to fulfill that purpose. That's where I want you to land today. To understand you are created by God. As a matter of fact, David wrote in Psalms that we are wondrously created. And God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And you may be here this morning and you may say, Pastor, I don't know what that is. You know what? It's not too late. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And it is incredible and God wants to reveal that to you. God wants to work with you in bringing you to that place, to that plan, so that when it is the end of your life, you can simply say, as so many others have, I have fulfilled my purpose, the purpose for my life. And we were able to do that with Pat. And I, I love that about our church is most of our celebrations of life here. It is an affirmation. She lived out God's plan and purpose for her life, and we celebrate that. That's where I want you to land today, is that when your time comes, it will be a celebration of your life that was created by God with a specific purpose, and you nailed it. That's where I want you to land today. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, we just thank you so much that we are wondrously created. And the Bible says that we know that. Yet the scripture also says that there are people who just suppress that truth, that revelation, that they suppress that with unrighteousness. Father, we don't want to suppress that. We want to acknowledge today. We want to celebrate the fact that you have created us. And not only have you created us, but you have created us with a, a divine, a specific purpose to be fulfilled upon the earth. And God, every one of us, it is my desire that every one of us would seek to know you and to discover that plan and that purpose. God, to work in unison with you, your spirit in us and through us. God, that we would fulfill that plan and purpose for which you have created us for. 
And so God, that's where I want every heart, everyone to land here today, God, is an acknowledgement that God, you have created me, an acknowledgement that you have a marvelous plan for my life. And God, that there would just be a desire to know you and in knowing you to come to discover what that is. And God, in cooperation, in unison with your Holy Spirit, God, that we would be able to live out and to fulfill that purpose, Father. We thank you for that. And Lord, we just pray and we offer ourselves here today to you to say, may that be so in my life today. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.